I am thrilled this morning to have Aaron Lacey coming to preach for us. So come on up, Aaron. Aaron's from the UK. He was an elder at his home church there, preached regularly there, oversaw one of the, one of the congregations there. Aaron loves Jesus Christ. Aaron and his wife love having people over to their home and sharing the gospel with them. Aaron is a man of God's word, and that's why I'm so excited to have him come and bring God's word to us today. So let's welcome Aaron. Thank you, Steve. Not quite sure I'm going to live up to that billing, but we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so good morning, Grace Church. It's fantastic um, to, to be with you this morning. It's fantastic to, to, to be sharing a message with you this morning. So um, as Steve said, my name's Aaron. Um, I'm here in Abu Dhabi with my wife, Natasha, and our, our three children, Jasmine, Oscar, and Talia. Um, and we've been here for about four months now. So uh, as you can imagine, they are very excited, as we've, we've touched on this morning, that we're, we're entering the Christmas period. Um, I don't know about you guys. You can probably guess from looking at me, but we definitely do chocolate advent calendars. So this morning was extremely exciting for us. Uh, as Steve said, we, we originate from, from uh, England in the United Kingdom, um, which I'm sure some people here are going to disagree with me, but the UK is where all the best sports have come from. I'm talking, I'm talking football or soccer. I'm talking rugby and cricket. You can, you can keep your other sports, but, but uh, you probably agree with me. People from the UK, we're, we're modest and we're very humble. So despite the fact that we came up with all the sports, we've allowed everybody to overtake us in them. But despite not being very good at sport, we Brits still love it. And I don't know about you, and I don't know if anybody else here does, but I'm, a, I'm a, quite a big soccer fan. Uh, and and uh, if you don't know much about football, over this kind of last six months or this last year, prices for, for football players have just literally shot through the roof. So much so that, that I've heard fans of a football team called Liverpool. They're describing this new signing they got in the summer called Mohamed Salah. They're describing him as an absolute bargain because he only cost 180 million dirham. Because at that rate, he's probably going to, the rate he's going at the moment, he's probably going to score 20 goals this system, season. So uh, since living in Abu Dhabi, I've noticed a few things that to me, from the UK, I consider bargains. So being able to get a litre of fuel for two dirhams, that's a bargain. Being able to go into Ikea and purchase an ice cream for my children for one dirham, that's a bargain. <laughs> Nine million dirhams per goal? No, that's not, that's not a bargain for me. But, but the truth is, certainly in Europe, football is a, a very big business, and, and fans are willing to pay the sorts of prices that are required, and, and the TV subscriptions and, and the kind of football kits, to make the going rate for a footballer that can score 20 goals a season 180 million dirhams. That's his value, or if you like, that's his worth to lovers of the game, which when you give it some thought, is, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? I'm a football fan, but I think that that is absolute madness. Now, I'm not going to talk about football for too much longer, so don't worry, but just to take another example, Arsenal Football Club, who some of you may not know much about, but they're, they're, they're not even a, a not not a top-tier team. They're kind of a second- or third-tier team. Yet, to go and watch them 
for a season, a season ticket will cost you 5,000 dirhams. And that is the very cheapest seats. To pay that sort of money to watch literally 20 games a season of, of average football from the very cheapest seats, I would say takes quite some love of the game. I'd actually go as far as to say that anybody who is willing to pay that sort of money to go and watch football for a season is in one way a worshipper of Arsenal Football Club. Because the word worship literally means to give worth to something. It's worth-ship. And if you pay 5,000 dirhams a year to, to watch a, a football team where they're paying their players 100,000, sorry, 500,000 dirhams a week, and they're paying for their players 180 million dirhams or whatever it is a year, then by very definition, you have given football a very high value, a high worth in your life. And like many other sports, football is an excellent example of how we worship. Anybody that's been to a big game or anybody who's been to a concert will know you kind of get sucked in, don't you? And you literally find yourself singing the praises, chanting the team name in worship of what they're doing. But of course, worship comes in in many different forms. It's not just for football fans. Perhaps uh, I think one of the most obvious forms of worship that we can get sucked into, which is perhaps pretty subtle, is, is the kind of worship of the phone or worship of, of social media. When you get us every spare minute, and I know I can be guilty of this, you find yourself dipping into Facebook or Instagram or, or Twitter to see what delights they hold for you. And again, the thing that you spend your time on are the things that you give worth to. And falling into the trap of worshipping at the, fo- the, the, the altar of, of the smartphone or Facebook is an easy thing to do. And we all do it. In some way or another, we all worship something. Do you know why? It's because it's what we were designed to do. And like I say, often it can be quite subtle as well. Particularly for those of us here this morning who would call ourselves Christians. Because if I asked you, who is it that you worship? The obvious answer would, of course, be Jesus. But the truth is that sometimes, just sometimes, Jesus is not alone in our affections. And to discover what we really worship, it's actually quite simple. We just need to ask ourselves three questions. When I get the chance, what is it that I spend my time doing? How do I spend my money? When I get the odd moment to drift off into my thoughts, where do they take me? And again, if you're here this morning as a Christian and you're asking yourself those questions internally, it can be quite a depressing place to get to as you realize that, yes, I'm I'm a worshiper of Jesus, but so many other things hold the key to my wallet or the key to my heart or the key to my head or the things that I do. And the reason this happens is that we've lost sight of who Jesus really is. Because when we see him as he is, in his, in his incredible majesty, when we really see him in that way, then we worship him alone. So what we need to do is we need to, again, see who Jesus is, and we need to experience him. Or it might be here that you're here this morning, and actually you'd say, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I, I kind of wonder 
what is it about this Jesus that has got people in this room who are literally from all corners of the globe, what is it about him that, that millions of people worldwide want to offer their worship to? How can the, the, the life of a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, how can that have any relevance to me? And again, to understand this, you need to see Jesus as he really is. To drop the misconception that Jesus is maybe a kind of some sort of peace-loving hippie and to encounter him as he is in the Bible. Which is what we're going to be doing this morning. We are going to be looking at the Jesus, the only Jesus, who is worthy of our worship. So if you could ask you to turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. And I think we'll get it on the screen as well. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that is probably my favorite opening few verses to, to any uh, book in the Bible. Because there's, there's kind of no filler in there at all, is there? there they, John jumps straight in with some pretty deep, some pretty challenging theological statements about who Jesus is. But the first time you hear them, or if you haven't really given them much thought, they can be pretty daunting, can't they? In the beginning was the Word. What does that mean? And the Word was with God. How can a Word be, be with God? Makes even less sense. And the Word was God. The, the Word was what? The Word was God? You've, you've lost me. And it kind of gets more confusing from there. So this morning I'm going to break this down verse at a time and see what it is that John is saying and see what these incredible claims and the implications of these claims are about Jesus to us. So just to reiterate the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So probably the first thing to tackle in this sentence is what is John talking about when he says the Word? Well, we see in a later verse, it says that the Word became flesh and he dwelt with us. Before then, it goes on throughout the, 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 the course of the whole book of John to talk about the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So we know that the Word is a title for Jesus. And I'll go into a little bit more detail in, in a moment as to why John was, was uh, calling Jesus the Word. But first, I want to consider what John is saying about him by giving him this title. So firstly, what he's saying, and probably the most obvious thing that he's saying here, is that Jesus was there in the beginning. And of course, what John is doing here is he's pointing us to the opening line of the opening book 
of the Bible, in Genesis, where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before anything was created, this is what John's pointing out to us by bringing Genesis and John together. Before anything was created, and whether you believe that was 6,000 years ago, whether you believe that was 16 billion years ago, it doesn't matter. Before then, Jesus existed. He was before all things, which is pretty mind-blowing. Not only that, there was never a time that Jesus didn't exist. Now, this is quite some claim, isn't it? This man that John himself had known, John had spoken to, John had touched, John had eaten with, is an eternal being. He's literally saying, my friend Jesus existed before the dawn of time. What a claim. Imagine I introduced you to N.A. and said, my friend N.A., he existed before the dawn of time. What would you say? Firstly, you'd probably say, where do I get that moisturizer? (laughs) But once you've kind of questioned us about it, pretty quickly, you'd dismiss us because there's no truth in that claim. But this is the exact claim that John was making about Jesus. Imagine what that must have sounded like to his original hearers. Maybe to you now, you're thinking, wow, that's incredible. For all eternity, Jesus, the Son of God, has been in relationship with God the Father. As two distinct persons, the Father and the Son. And this explains why later in Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. Multiple persons, but one image. There's a clear distinction between the personhood of the Father and the Son. And actually, the truth contained in this sentence is perhaps one of the the most mysterious and theologically challenging truths of, of all Christian theology. The nature of this relationship between the the Son and the Father in one image and the Holy Spirit, but three distinct persons, is extremely difficult to comprehend. In fact, I'd go further than that. I'd say it's something that we can never fully comprehend. And there are many illustrations that we can use that try and explain this. Uh, Augustine, for example, he he used the image of, of the the sun and its rays in that they are separate things, but they're, they're kind of inseparable in that they're always united. But any illustration that describes the Trinity will always fall down when you push it too far. But our failure to understand this, our failure to fully grasp this in the way that we probably would like to, doesn't make it any less true. What we have here is what you'd call a paradox as opposed to a contradiction. And it's a tension that Jesus himself refers to when he says in John 10, I and the Father am one. Or as John puts it here, the Word was with God and the Word was God. Two distinct persons, but one God. Not only has Jesus been with God since the beginning, but Jesus himself is God. In his very essence, in his very nature, in his very substance, Jesus is completely God. And I expect some of you are probably thinking, well, great, I hope he's going to explain how this is so in a minute. 
to explain with perfect clarity the kind of the unity and the, 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 the distinctness and the plurality of, of, of God in three persons as Father, Spirit, and Son, to clearly define how the Trinity exists. I expect some of you are thinking it would be good if I could do that, but unfortunately, I'm not going to. The reason is that I can't. Why? Because nowhere in the Bible does it tell us how this is so. It just tells us that it is. And why does it not tell us? Well, it's probably because it's utterly incomprehensible to us, to our level of intellect. Perhaps it's even impossible for us to understand with the five senses that we've been given. For God to explain the fullness of the Trinity to me would be like me explaining to my three-year-old daughter the, 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 the uh, theory or Newton's law of, of universal gravitation. It would be pointless. She wouldn't get it. But what she does understand about gravity is if she jumps off something high and hits the floor, she's going to hurt herself. That is the important bit of gravity for my daughter. She doesn't need to understand the mechanics, but she needs to know. She jumps off something high, she hits the floor, she gets hurt. And the important thing about the Trinity that we mustn't miss is that God is so different from us that he exists in a tripersonal being, in a tripersonal form that is so far removed from how we exist, he is so far beyond anything that we can imagine. That is the thing that we must realize about God. It's one of the most amazing things about the Trinity. It's one of the most amazing things about Jesus. He is so magnificent. He is so awesome. He is so incredible that we can't even fully grasp the nature of his existence. And we often try to, don't we? Because we often try to reduce Jesus down to being just a man. We kind of maybe compare him to, to Gandhi, also a, 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 a great man, a wise moral teacher, somebody who lived a, a, a humble life, and we go, yeah, Jesus, he was a man like Gandhi. Indeed, in Islam, Jesus is the second greatest man to have lived as, as the penultimate prophet. People of all world faiths and people of no faith all see Jesus as a great man. But whilst he is a man, he is so much more. I'm sure everybody here who knows Steve would say he, he's a great guy. He has got an, a long list of, of very enviable, awesome question, uh, qualities that I, I think we could probably all, all reel off. But, but like all men who are just men, Steve is infinitely short of the glory of God. He's not even close. Let's not put Jesus in that bracket of great man, because that's not where he belongs. He is fully and entirely and completely God. He owes us nothing. Quite the contrary, every breath that we take is indebted to him. Yet at the same time, Jesus, this God, he chose to become like us, to lower himself to this level. As we sung, he became a baby, giving up the privileges of God in order to free us 
from the mess that we make of our lives, in order to free us from the mess that the world is in. And, and ultimately, as, as Steve spoke about last week, he frees us from the eternal consequence of that mess. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if there are any words in our Bible that should cause us to worship Jesus, then these are them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he came down and rescued us from our sin. And it's interesting to consider the phrase that John uses to describe Jesus, the Word. In using this title for Jesus, it goes hand in hand with what John is actually saying about him. Because whereas my words, sadly, may not always represent exactly how I am. So sometimes maybe I'll be disingenuous. Sometimes I'll be downright devious. Sometimes maybe I'm just misinformed. Hopefully more often I'm misinformed. But God's words always represent him and they always achieve what they set out to do. We read this in Isaiah 55 in verse 11. It says this, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And we see this both in creation, where God spoke and the earth was formed. The sun, moon, and stars were set into place. But we also see this in the life of Jesus, who at God's command achieved all that was set out for him. He failed in nothing. God's words bear an exact resemblance and will always accomplish what he set them out to do. Jesus is the eternal word of God, therefore, bears an exact resemblance to God himself and he will always achieve what God sets out to do. So I guess the big question is what is it that Jesus set out to do? So if we go back to the passage, we'll see if there's any clues there. So in verse 2, it says, He was in the beginning with God. Now, of course, this is a reiteration of what we've just read, but I think that's important because actually it, it, the fact that John is, is repeating it twice shows the importance of it. Then verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this was first Jesus. Sorry, this was Jesus's first mission. That was to the first thing that he set out to accomplish: to make everything. That's quite a big task, isn't it? Any to-do list. First thing: make everything. Okay. Now, if you were to ask my wife Tash, she would probably uh, agree with me that whilst I'm not very good at DIY. I'm generally kind of reasonably enthusiastic at, at giving it a go. And there's kind of two particular features of, of my DIY efforts. And a number of you have visited our home, and, and unfortunately we've not lived there very long, so you won't have seen these features yet. But, but if you ever visited us in the UK, you'd know what I mean. So the, the first feature of my DIY attempts is that they take quite a long time. Now, it's, it's not that I actually take that long doing them, but, you know, once I get started, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much okay. But it's, it's getting started that's the problem. I've got a, a tendency to follow Mark Twain's philosophy of never put off till tomorrow what may be done the next day just as well. <laughs> and I like to think 
that my reason for doing this is, is that I'm a strategic thinker. I'm, I'm, I'm ensuring that I've, I've kind of lined the plans up in my head. Right, now Tasha probably put it slightly differently. But either way, before doing DIY, key feature is that I procrastinate. I take time. I'm a bit slow. And the second thing when I do DIY is that whilst I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pretty good in that I can do things and make them functional so they, they kind of work, they're, they're not always quite as intended. So either there's something sticking out of it that, that shouldn't be, or maybe it's on a bit of a slant, or you need to kind of wedge a bit of wood in the side to, to get it working, or there's some sort of specialist instructions often. And Tashko, you, you know, you say you fix this, but it doesn't work. No, no, no. You've got to turn it three times, kick the bottom, then pull it. It's just, ah. So that's the second thing. I don't do things, I, I may get them functional, but they're not, certainly not perfect. And of course, these features of, of my DIY, I procrastinate, and then I make a bit of a hash of it when I get there, are two very, very, very good reasons that I'm not Jesus. Because it tells us here that all things were made through Jesus. And in, in sharp contrast, sorry, to my approach, he didn't procrastinate. God spoke and all things were formed, like that, in an instant. And after all things were made, in the book of Genesis, it tells us that God declared them to be good. In other words, they were exactly as he intended them to be. Jesus' first mission was to make all things, and he's accomplished that perfectly. But of course, the next thing that happened in the book of Genesis where we read the creation story is that man came up, came along, and he basically messed it all up. Adam, uh, and by extension and, and in practice, we all in this room, everybody who's ever existed, have sinned, causing the fall of the world, which, of course, under the, the, the framework of, of God's sovereignty, is the reason behind all evil, behind all tragedy. It's behind the reason behind death. And not only this, it was the reason for Jesus' second mission. So if we could turn back to verse 4, it says this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now the light that John is referring to, that, sorry, the life that John is referring to, is not the kind of physical earthly life that we all as human beings have been given which in itself is, of course, an incredible gift from Jesus. But, but what John is referring to here, what the focus is here, is the new spiritual life, the saving life, the gift of eternal life that Jesus came to the earth to give us. The life that stands in direct opposition to the spiritual death that the actions of Adam and the fall have produced. We see this to be the case when we jump forward in John, into uh, John 5. Jesus says this, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, apart from believing in Jesus, we are all dead. In order to live forever and not come into judgment... We need the gift of life. Just as all things were formed through him, this gift of eternal life is only through Jesus. 
And a few verses earlier, in John 5, verse 11, he says this, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's a very black and white statement, isn't it? In him was life. If you have him, you have life. If you reject him, you reject life. And there are further echoes of this all throughout the book of John. Chapter 5, verse 14. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. It's clear that when John says in in chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life, he means spiritual life, eternal life, life that saves from judgment. If you have the Son, if you have Jesus, if you are in Him, and if He is in you, then you have life forever. Union with Jesus is everything. It's not part of the deal. It's not union with Jesus and. It's not do a load of stuff. Union with Jesus is everything. Because without this union, we don't have life. Rather, as we'll see in a few weeks in, in our study in Ephesians, where it talks in chapter 2, it says we are literally dead in our sins. Which is what John is pointing to when he says the life was the light of men. When you go into work on, on Sunday or Monday, depending whether you're a public or private worker, and I, I'm going to go on a Sunday, not bitter about that at all, but... But when you do go into work, most of the people that you come into contact with will at least look like they're alive, hopefully, unless you work in a morgue. But I'm assuming that you don't. So assuming everybody you, you come into contact with looks as though they're alive, if you were to go up to them and say, hi, Dave, how are you doing? Did you know that you're dead? Probably you'd get a bit of a funny look. And quite quickly, I'd imagine you would be escorted off the premises for, for such a, a strange activity. But if you substitute the word dead for spiritually blind and in darkness, then you can start to see what John is saying here. Because the definition of dead in this instance isn't, as I said, it's not the kind of this earthly life that we have. The def- definition of dead isn't that they can't walk, they can't talk, they can't kind of act and, and eat and speak. The definition of dead is that as it's put by Matthew in Matthew 13, seeing they do not see. And what is it that spiritually blind or spiritually dead people, what is it that they don't see? What they don't see, as John is keen to stress in, in these verses, that Jesus is the one who created all things. And if you're spiritually blind or spiritually dead, you also don't see that Jesus is God. And you also don't see, and you're also blind to, your own personal need for salvation. We don't see the preciousness of that sacrifice that would lift us out of our spiritual slumber. The result being, if you are spiritually blind or spiritually dead, you're walking in darkness because you can't see those realities. If we're going to see them, if we're going to receive them, we must have life. Because life is what makes seeing possible. 
which is what John is saying here in verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. New life that comes from knowing Jesus brings light. Or in other words, new life makes seeing possible. When death is replaced with life, darkness is replaced with light. I just want to emphasize that. When death is replaced with life, darkness is replaced with light. In John 8 verse 12, Jesus says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you receive Jesus, you receive life. When you receive life, you receive light. And this is the second mission that Jesus set out to accomplish, to bring life and light to men. And it's a mission that he began on the cross, and it's a mission that he continues today. And alongside bringing life and light, Jesus has a third mission, to completely overcome darkness. So if we look at verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if you get home late in the evening, you walk into the house, and you open the door, and you flick that switch next to the front door, what happens? The lights come on. But something else also happens as well, doesn't it? You flick the switch, the light comes on. What else happens? The darkness goes away. Good work, N.A. Gold star for you. The darkness goes away. In fact, this happens all the time, doesn't it? If ever you bring light into a place of darkness, the light will always overcome the darkness. Darkness cannot physically overcome light. Light always trumps darkness. And the period of history that we live in, and, and that is in kind of the, the 2,000 years since the death of Jesus uh, and his resurrection, it's a time where God is giving life and he is giving light to men, and those who have received it receive his light. And as I've said, the new life that he gives us removes our spiritual blindness. But the kingdom of God has not yet fully come. So we've received life, we've received light, but the kingdom of God has not fully come. More people do not know Jesus than do know him. I think that's a fact, isn't it? which means that more people are living in darkness than are living in light. So we can say, yep, we have the light of Jesus, but so many more people don't. So many more people are blind than are not. And the viewpoint, certainly, I think, of particularly of the privileged Western world, is that actually we're living in an enlightened age. We're living in a time where things have never been better. We've got medicines, we've got kind of all this stuff that, 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 that point to, to us having almost become our own saviors we're saving ourselves but it's pretty difficult to maintain that this world that, that again like I say particularly in the west is, is sold is true when you turn on the TV and you see terrorist attacks literally day in day out around the world when you consider the fact that over 3 billion people that's nearly half the world's population are living in poverty on less than about 7 dirhams a day it's pretty difficult to maintain that when you, you read that UNICEF reckon that 22,000 children die per day as a result of poverty. 
or that every single year, 500,000, that's half a million people, are murdered every year, which means not only 500,000 people are murdered, but that means there's 500,000 people who have murdered somebody else. Yet the world is a broken place. Even if you're not Christian, I think it's pretty easy to see that. It's pretty difficult to deny that there is darkness in the world, and it's even more difficult to deny that there's darkness in the hearts of men. And to use an analogy, Jesus has given those of us who believe in him, it's like we've got torches. It gives us enough light for us to see, and it gives us enough light for us to attract others. But the truth is that the world around us is still in darkness. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back, and when he flicks that switch, all darkness will be eradicated completely destroyed. The forces of evil, the prince of evil himself, Satan, shall be disposed of. Now this is good news. Now this is something that we should definitely be looking forward to. But there is an extremely stark warning in here. Because as I said, if you've not received life, if you've not received light, then you, that is when I say that, if you have not recognized your need for salvation, if you've not recognized the darkness in your own heart, and if you have not turned to Jesus as the one who saves you, as the one who is to be worshipped, then you haven't received this light, which means that you're still living in darkness. It means that if your friends, your family, haven't received this, then they are still living in darkness. And there will be a time when Jesus comes back, where if you're living in darkness, you will momentarily see his brilliance, his light, but then spend an eternity separated from it in utter darkness. And as hard as it is to imagine, the reality of that darkness is so, so, so much worse, infinitely worse than the darkness that i just spoken about that's going on in the world today. But if you don't know Jesus, then this offer to receive life is open to you today. And this offer is open to you regardless of who you are. It's open to you regardless of where you're from. It's open to you regardless of your background, whether you're rich or poor. It's open to you regardless of your guilt, regardless of your sin, regardless of what is in your heart. Jesus is offering this to you this morning. I am begging you, if you do not know Jesus, then do not reject him today. But rather come and worship this Jesus that I've spoken about today. This Jesus who is God. The Jesus who created and sustains the heavens and the earth and everything in them. The Jesus who, despite being God, gave up the privileges and the rights that go with that. Became a man and perversely paid the price of us sinning against him in going to the cross and being cut off from this eternal relationship with the Father. Thus giving us eternal life. The Jesus who will come come back one day, he will heal every hurt, he will wipe every tear away, and he will remove all darkness and the stain of evil from this earth. The Jesus around whom our lives should revolve. Because he and he alone is worthy of our worship. So let's put away our lesser gods. And that is painful. And that is sacrificial because there's stuff that we hold on to dearly. But let's put it away and let's make him 
the center, the most valuable things in our life. And let's worship him with every penny, with every breath, with every moment that we've got. Because he is entirely, completely worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are God and that you are good. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you created the heavens and the earth. You knitted each one of us in our mother's wombs. Lord Jesus, you are above and over all things. Your awesomeness cannot even be comprehended by our minds. Lord Jesus, you are our life and our light. And I just pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see you again, Lord, to empower us by your Spirit, to leave behind the stuff of this world, not to hold on to it, not like Lot's wife to look back at our former lives, but to keep persevering after you. Lord Jesus, we offer you our hearts. We offer you everything we have, our finances, our words, our actions. We give them over to you for your glory, Lord. We just pray that you would overcome darkness, Lord. If there is anybody here that doesn't know you this morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would confront and that you would bring light into the life of men this morning. In Jesus' name.